0: which is the second death. This is God's Word. As I mentioned, uh, Advent is not only about Christmas uh, and anticipating celebration of Christ's first coming, but also it's it's looking forward to His second coming and the restoration of all things. So we're looking at these two chapters during the Advent season and Christmas and consider, what we want to do is consider what awaits us in eternity, arguably, there is no subject so frequently talked about and yet so grossly misunderstood as heaven, even among Christians. You know, you think about even church people, Bible people. There's a lot of confusion about what awaits us in eternity. Many Christians, I find, are not at all excited about heaven. They only see the appeal of heaven in so far as it's just. Um, Preferable to hell. There's nothing really to get excited about. But what if, what if the vision of our eternal home in Scripture is so wonderful, is so wonderful that it helps us live now and it fills our lives with hope for what is to come. Because that's what it is. The Bible actually gives us this wonderful picture of what is to come. When I was preparing this week, there were several moments where I literally had goosebumps, and I was thinking, if I could transfer that to you this morning, if I can get you excited about what's coming, if I can get you to have goosebumps this morning and get excited and maybe even leap a little when you leave, I would be very very happy. So let's see if we can if we can do that. Now I will tell you that as we look at these passages over the next month there will be some things that will challenge your uh the way you've been taught or the way you've assumed heaven is. So I just encourage you to search the scriptures, go to the Bible and see what the Bible actually says. There's a lot of ideas that come our way and you grow up a certain way and you hear certain things, you read certain books, but we're going to try to figure out what scripture actually says about the next world. Now, before we look at our text, let me lay down two important rules of interpretation because we're dealing with, with some highly uh, contested passages and that some people think are very confusing. I don't think they are if you use these two rules. first rule is that Revelation is a book written in the apocalyptic genre. Apocalyptic genre is, is a It's a genre of visions and images and symbols. You see it in Daniel, for example. All of Revelation is is apocalyptic. Uh, You see the minor prophets, Isaiah. There's there's lots of passages in the Bible that are apocalyptic, meaning that it gives us an image of what is to come, but it doesn't explain it in details. It gives us a truth. It gives us something to understand, to hold on to, but it gives us through the means of imagery and, and symbols. Now, symbols are meant to be understood. They're meant to be interpreted and accepted as true, but they're not literal. They're symbolic, so we need to be careful when we interpret books like Revelation. I think in most cases, apocalyptic images are fairly simple to interpret when you see how they're used in this kind of literature. The second rule is that these two chapters of Revelation are the conclusion of the whole Bible, so for us to understand what it teaches, we can't see that as isolated, an isolated teaching or isolated passages. No, no, this is a culmination. This is a conclusion of the Bible. And so all the themes and lots of the images and lots of the teachings of Scripture actually come together and they culminate and they're resolved in these two chapters at the end of the book. So we need to read this passage in light of the whole Bible. Okay, we'll be using the same rules throughout this series, so remember them apocalyptic symbols and the end of the Bible. So let's get into it. Here's my outline. I'd like us first to look at what the promise is. What is the promise of this new world? Second, let's look at who makes that promise. And finally, let's look at to whom the promise is made. So, what is the promise? Who makes it? And to whom it applies? Okay. Here's what we are promised. At the end of human history, God will make a new heaven and a new earth where we will live with Him forever. That's the promise. Right away, if you're paying attention, right away, a common misunderstanding of the afterlife is challenged here because God says, I will make a new heaven and a new earth, not just heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. Now we commonly say heaven as applicable to all afterlife, it's fine to say that, but what scripture actually teaches is it's heaven and earth, both, both are renewed. In eternity there's not just going to be heaven, there's also going to be earth. It's not a promise of some sort of ethereal existence in some spiritual realm. The holy city, New Jerusalem, comes down from heaven to earth. From heaven to earth. Look with me at Isaiah 65. This is undoubtedly a passage that's in the background of Revelation. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. As you listen... Pay attention to the images and symbols that Isaiah is using to describe what is to come in this new heaven and the new earth. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, Shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. God's eternal home for his people, what he is preparing for us, is described in Isaiah in decidedly earthly images. This is really important. There will be a city, there are houses, there are gardens, there are plants, there's work, there's family, there's community, there are animals. These are the images. Now these are symbols, these are the images. We can't take everything literally in this text, but these images mean something very important. And what they mean is, is that the next creation, the new creation, will be a lot like the old creation. There's continuity between the two. It's going to be kind of like we know, but it's going to be better. It's going to be kind of like what we know now, but it's going to miss some really terrible elements of what we experience now. But we're going to recognize it. There's going to be things we know we're going to do things we used to do. N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, describes our future as a new bodily life within God's new world. A new bodily life within God's new world is what he says. He says, I'm constantly amazed that many contemporary Christians find this confusing. It was second nature to the early church and to many subsequent generations. It was what they believed and taught. If we have grown up believing and teaching something else, it's time we rubbed our eyes and read our texts again. God's plan is not to abandon this world. The world which he said was very good. Rather, he intends to remake it. And when he does, he will raise all his people to new bodily life to live in it. This is the promise of the Christian gospel. This is really important. God will reclaim his creation. And he will renew his creation, rather than destroy it altogether and take his people somewhere else. You know, there's lots of Christians who believe that we're just getting ready to be done with this world, done with this body, done with these issues, and then we'll be somewhere else. But scripture says that we'll be here, except that this world will be totally remade and renewed. God will not abandon it. you can look forward to the future because you already know what it will be like. To some degree, not to full degree, but to some degree, you already know what your future is. But of course, in another sense, this new creation will be very different from the old. This is why verse 1 says that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Verse 4 says that this is in Revelation 21, says the former things have passed away. So it will be like this old world, but it will be remade and renewed and it will be different, and many former things will not be there, and the old creation in one sense will pass away, but a new creation will come and restore and renew the old. So what is new about this new creation, about this new heaven and the new earth? Let me narrow down to two things. One, the absence of sin, and two, the presence of God. The new home, the new world, is going to be like the old home, except there will be no sin, and there will be God. The new creation will be free from the curse of the old creation. Sin and all the effects of sin, most notably death, will be removed. Verse 1 says, "...and they see..." will be no more or the sea was no more it doesn't mean there won't be any bodies of water or swimming or beaches or surfing in the new world that's not what it says it's using apocalyptic language where the sea is a symbol of chaos and evil and sin and wickedness and and brokenness and rebellion against god If you read Revelation, you will undoubtedly notice that in Revelation 13, the beast comes out of the sea and challenges God. And so in apocalyptic language, this means that everything connected with sin, the source of sin, the source of evil, will be eradicated. In God's new creation, all the forces of evil... Anything in opposition to God's good will for His creation, all sin, all death will be gone. It'll just be gone. The curse of Genesis three that has ravished the world ever since Adam and Eve fell will be reversed. These are amazing promises creation, the new creation will be like the old creation but it will be completely different because in our experience we know it through sin and we know it apart from God but in the new creation there will be no sin and there will be God I listened to an interview with Mitch Album, shifting gears a little bit okay. the Detroit sport writer, sports writer that, that found fame by writing books that are encouraging and help people deal with death and loss and grief Uh, Tuesdays with Maury is probably his most famous book. He said that when he was a sports writer, people would recognize him in Detroit at the airport and and would just kind of yell at him, who's going to win the Super Bowl? And he would just turn around and say, the Patriots, and keep walking. you know. But after he published his Tuesdays with Maury book, he said people would stop him and want to talk to him. And they want to share their stories, and they want to connect with him about their experiences of loss and sadness and grief. This is what he says. He says, you become apathetic to the fact that pretty much everybody is walking around with some sadness or somebody that they're grieving or somebody who's sick in their life and maybe they're just not showing it, but if given a chance, they'd love to talk about it. We all live in this creation, in this old creation, we all live under the effects of sin we all walk around with some sadness in our hearts. Now, some of us hide it better than others. The degree of that sadness varies, mostly based on your age. You live longer, you experience more heartbreak. But everybody's dealing with that. Everybody cries. Everybody mourns. Everybody hurts. And yet, one day... God promises to heal our hearts. So when we walk around in the new creation, we won't stop each other and talk about our sadness. We won't look for opportunities to share about our grief or our pain. Now look at verse 4. God says this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away (coughs) what are the former things pain and regret and tears and heartache and sorrow those are the former things that god will remove as he remakes his world so nothing will hurt there'll be nothing to cry about no one will be dying Sin, which is the cause of all our tears, will not be part of that new creation. This is an incredible promise. It's it's impossible for us to imagine that, which is why we're given these vivid images. Because all our experience of the world is connected with sin and tears and pain. That's what we think of the world. But there's another world like this one and yet unlike this one. Like this one in the things that are good about this world, everything that's good about this world is going to be in the next one. But unlike this one, because nothing bad will make it into the next world. Now, of course, another effect of sin is our separation from God. In the new creation, there will be no separation from God. Another thing that's impossible for us to imagine, because we live our lives trying to connect with Him trying to feel his presence, deducing from Scripture what he is like. But in the new world, God will simply be there. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. For many thousands of years, God's world has attempted to function apart from its creator. That's sin. That's what sin is. But all of it will change when God makes a new heaven and a new earth, a world in which he himself will dwell with us. Now you may recall that in the original creation, when God made the world, when God made the first people, He was there with them. Remember that. They were talking with him in the garden. He was there. There was no separation until sin entered. And after the fall, there was a separation between God and humanity, between heaven and earth. That's why we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because there is a perfect realm where God dwells and God's will is done perfectly, but not here, not on earth. But God says, I will make a new earth, a new earth that comes from heaven that will be eternally and perfectly connected where heaven and earth will be together and God's will will be perfect for both realms because it will be one realm because he will inhabit his whole world again. More than that, he won't just dwell with us What we need to expect is a marriage-like intimacy and depth with God in the new creation. We'll talk more about it next week, but this city, this holy Jerusalem, this, this new creation is likened to a bride. A bride will finally be with her husband. We will finally know God as he is. We will be able to be with him without any barriers, without any separation, anything sinful, preventing us from knowing him. Let me show you another really cool thing about this passage. Where is God's throne in this picture? Where is it? Do you know? Have you paid enough attention to see the location of God's throne in the vision of this new creation? Now, if you read 21 and 22, if you you read it carefully, you will see that the throne is actually on earth. But the Old Testament tells us, Psalms 11, for example, says, the Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. In the old creation, God rules from heaven. His throne is in heaven. And so we pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven because his throne is in heaven. But in the new creation, God dwells with his people and he rules from among them. The whole world will become his temple. And he will fill the whole world, earth and heaven, with his glory. These are amazing truths that if embraced by us, if understood and applied to our lives, will utterly change how we live. Because in our new eternal home with God, every tear that we shed now in the face of brokenness will be wiped away. Every wound inflicted by sin now will be healed. Every regret of disobedience will be removed. Every moment of sorrow will be replaced with joy inexpressible at the presence of the God who makes all things new. This is His promise to you. Everything good from this world will make it into the next and it will be even better everything bad from this world will never make it into the next we will have bodies but they will not be susceptible to cancer we will have relationships but they will not be plagued by jealousy and betrayal we will work but our work will not be spoiled by competition. We will create beautiful art, but we will not be consumed by the pursuit of human praise. All of this is because our God is a restorer. Our God is a redeemer, and he will renew his creation. He's not going to abandon it, just like he's not going to abandon us. He's not going to destroy it. And forget about it he's gonna renew it he's gonna remake it he's gonna redeem it now let me give you an illustration as many of you know we recently moved to a house that was a fixer-upper house and we had to envision what it was gonna be like if we were going to enjoy it in the in the midst of the renovations and we've remade it we've renewed it well not me so much I mostly made mistakes along the way but other people that know what they're doing they've redeemed it now in some way if you saw the house before it was remodeled and if you go to there now you would say "Oh, this looks totally different this wasn't here this is a different color this wall used to be here you would say it's completely different on the other hand you would also say I can see the old house I can see that this has just been remodeled, it's been remade, it's been renewed, but it's still the same house. Everything that was good about the house remains. Everything that was bad about the house, almost, is fixed up. (laughs) This is an image of what God is going to do with the whole world. In the new creation, you will be able to tell the sameness and the continuity with the old. You'll be able to say, I remember that. It kind of looks like the old earth. It kind of looks like what it used to be like. I remember doing that. Which is why what you do now matters, because you'll be doing that in eternity. But on the other hand, you will say this is completely different. There are rooms I can't even recognize. Because it's so new, it's so different, and things that were broken, things that were were bad are gone. And now it's filled with the presence of God. Who makes the promise? If this is the promise, if it's as wonderful as it is, who makes it? Well, in the same interview I mentioned earlier, Mitch Album gave me a lot the interview gave me a lot of fodder for sermon prep. Mitch Album was asked if he was a spiritual person, because he writes about spiritual things. He writes about hope and, and grief, and he writes about dealing with those things and hoping for something better. and he writes about afterlife. And so he was asked, are you a spiritual person? Are you comfortable with being a spiritual person? He went on to describe his experience of running an orphanage in Haiti and then adopting a child from that orphanage and losing that child two years later to a brain tumor. And he said, you need to be spiritual in situations like that. You need to believe that there's something more, something bigger than us, whatever it is, he said, I don't ascribe to or tell people to go to any one religion or faith, but I do believe in believing in something. I do believe that we're not just warm food that we, when we die. If we were, there would be no explanation for some of the suffering, no explanation for some of the things that I've seen people endure or what we've had to endure ourselves, my wife and I, in our lives. I guess, he says, I am spiritual in that way. Now, if I were to interpret a little bit of what he's saying in light of Scripture, I think what he's feeling is what all human beings made in God's image are feeling. What we're feeling is that we're not made for the world under sin, and suffering. We're not made for this. There's, there's dissonance here. We're not supposed to be hurting. We're not supposed to be crying. We're not supposed to be losing children. It's not how it's supposed to be. And so there's a hope that there's another world, because this one doesn't fit us. And I, I think Album is right, that Hope is necessary, spirituality is necessary. We need a bigger vision of reality to process our pain and suffering. We have to have that, whether you are religious or not. There's a human, universal human longing for another world. But what is the basis of this hope for Mitch Album? For him, it seems to be not much more than a generic faith, just the power of faith. He says he believes in believing in something. In his mind, if you believe in something spiritual, if you hope that there is something else, it helps you get through the suffering right now. And it does, of course it does. But the Christian hope is something quite different. We believe in the promise of the new creation because of who makes that promise. It's very different we're not just going on instinct even though it fits with our instinct it affirms our human experience we're not just going on that we are trusting in the person who makes the promise of a new creation this is very different our information ultimately doesn't come from within it comes from outside it comes from someone else now look at verses 5 and 6 which reveal to us who makes this promise he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Who's making the promise? The Lord Himself. The Lord Himself is telling us what He is about to do. The Alpha, And the Omega, the first and the last, the crucified and risen, the lion and the lamb, the creator and the restorer of this world. This is who is talking to us. This is who says that a new world is coming, the one who can make it happen, the one who can say, I will make all things new, and he can do it. He is in charge of the world. This is not just reassurance for us who are suffering for the moment, just to help us get through the day. This is a much bigger promise than that. This is the one who created us, the one who redeemed us, the one who means to to restore us. This is who says to us, I will do it. What you feel in your heart is right. A new world is coming. It will be a much better fit for you, and I will bring it about. And what's wonderful about this promise that it isn't just words, it isn't just what's going to happen in the future, he has already begun the restoration of the world. He's already doing it. So when our heart says, there's another world out there that fits me better, our heart also says, I think we're moving in that direction. I think, I think God is already working. I think things are already falling into place. Yes, there will be a cataclysmic event, but we're already moving in that direction. What happened in the manger? What happened? Heaven came down to earth. That's what happened. God came to dwell with us. He did it. And before the whole world becomes His temple, as Revelation 21 and 22 tells us, He became our temple. He came. And he became the mediator. He became the one who stands before humanity and God and unites us and draws us together because God became human. John says he tabernacled with us. He templed with us. He became one of us. He lived with us. We saw his glory. God already came. The world is already being renewed because God has already moved his throne here. And that throne was first set up in the manger. What happened on the cross? The world, the flesh, the devil, and death itself were defeated by the death of the Son of God. The victory already happened. That is why in our passage Jesus says, it is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I started and I finished it. Now, you know a couple of other letters, right? You know Delta, Omicron. That's in between, you see. (laughs) But the first and the last is Jesus. And he says, I'm already doing this. I've already finished my work. On the cross, sin is defeated. And yes, we're still dealing with the presence of sin now. Our old creation is still groaning and longing for the redemption of everything. But sin has already been defeated. We can, as Christians, we can imagine a world without sin to some degree because we live with the sinless one. What happened in the empty tomb? New creation burst into the old. That's what happened. There was an earthquake, remember? There was darkness. There were things happening around the the crucifixion. But then when that dawn, the first dawn happened... And Jesus was gone from the grave, that's the beginning of a new creation. That's why Jesus is called the first fruits. He's the first one, he's the pioneer of this new resurrected humanity. But we're all going to follow him. He's just gone ahead, but we're all following him. We're all in the same trajectory, going in the same direction, and he's already renewing the world, beginning with us. This is who makes the promise. And because it is He who makes the promise, we say, Come, Lord Jesus. We're ready. We're ready for the new creation. We know what it's going to be like. Everything good from here will be there, and nothing bad will make it into the next. And let me briefly answer a very important question, the last question. Who does this promise meant to apply to? Who is this for? To whom is it made? Look at verse 6 and 7 with me. And he said to me, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. The promise of the new world is made to all who are thirsty for new life. This new life, this life-given water, again, this is, this is symbolic language, is offered to us, a new life is offered to us by grace, without payment, without condition, without qualification, other than our thirst itself. Who is this water for? Who is this hope for? It's for the thirsty, it's for the hopeless. It's for anyone who would take it. It's for anyone who would see new life and the hope of the new creation in Christ Jesus. And those who drink of God's life through Christ become his children. United with him now. I'm not talking, we we don't have to wait for the new creation right now. If you drink of God's life, if you accept his gift of grace, you are his child now. Part of his family, part of his kingdom part of his world forever. And you will be in the world where heaven and earth are no longer opposed to each other, where God rules from among his people because he already rules in your life now. In other words, the promise of the new creation is for new creatures. Therefore, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature now. The old has passed away already. Behold, the new has come. We are already, in some ways, already living in his new creation, even though it hasn't happened yet. But we are being renewed. We have been brought to life by grace. All of us who have responded to Christ's offer of life have become new creatures, adopted into his family, made citizens of his kingdom if you're reading our advent devotional i think a couple of days ago richard bacham wrote in it the water of life belongs in the new creation and the new jerusalem but it is available already in the present to those who are awaiting the coming of jesus it is though he comes to us already ahead of his final coming, and gives us a foretaste of the new creation. For that is what salvation is. We wait for him because we have met him already. What is the alternative? The alternative is to stick with the old creation, with all its sin and brokenness and evil. It is to reject the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness and persist in unrighteousness and rejection of God? Look at the sobering verse 8 because this too is part of our text. Verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of That burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There is another option. There is the new creation where there is no more sea, no more evil, no more chaos, no more rebellion against God. And then there is a place which is all a lake, it's just all fire, it's all rebellion, it's all sin and there's no God. The challenge for us today is to embrace the second life, the new birth, and the sure future of the new world, or to persist in our unbelief and rejection of God, only waiting for the second death and the final judgment. Which creation are you a part of? The new through Christ or the old? Which world do you hope to live in? Which Lord do you serve now?